my guest is Betsy Schneider. She's a photographer, filmmaker, and professor. We get into talking about her Guggenheim fellowships and what that meant for her career, teaching as a general thing, because of course we can relate, the fact that there's a huge generational shift in how the art world was when we were young and upcoming and how it is now, and her relationship with Sally Mann, and how relationships in general are very important to our artistic careers. This podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would like to thank our partners, Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to the EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes. Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Betsy Schneider. Great. Now, one thing I always wonder about people in the creative industries is, of course, how were they made? So, like, were your parents creative? Did you have some great teachers? Like, how did you even get to the creative industries? They were actually both somehow involved in psychology. And I've realized really recently, actually, that they were both, they both come from these lines of people who are a little bit obsessed with recording family stories. Both my grandfathers, I've inherited eight millimeter films from both my grandfathers, which revealed that both of them in slightly different ways were recording their family. We're looking at their children. They were looking at my, so I'm, I've been watching these films of my grandfathers looking at my parents as children. And only recently have I realized that that is something it's, it's not in the blood, I don't think, but maybe that just, so somehow it came down that way. My mother started to, when I was a very young, she was working on a PhD, which she never finished on psychology of children and art. And I've also seen recent photographs of me in my crib with like postcards, art postcards. I mean, when I was an infant. So for a while I thought, I don't know where it came from. My sisters and I are artists. And now I realize that, you know, it was a lot of that was already there, right? You, you see fate almost has it. Wait, so you're, you have sisters and yeah. they are also artists. Yeah, I have two younger sisters and neither of them has been able to fully form a career out of it, but they both make art all the time. So yeah, so we're, and we all ended up going to art school after we tried to go to, you know, the normal, the normal college, we, we all ended up getting art degrees. So I tried to go to the normal college as well. I went to Elon college in North Carolina and tried to be a psychology major that didn't work at all because they tried to say, okay, you need to, you need to be a Jungian or a Freudian, or you have to follow sort of this, this thing. And I said, I, I like little bits of all of it. And I want to put together sort of my own thing from little thing and they were like no oh i am totally un yeah yeah so i left i was like fuck that and then i actually went to the university of iowa where i was there as a native american studies major because i had studied with a native american shaman i had done some archaeological digs things like this and i got there and they were like oh yeah that major is not actually available yet it's a planned major and i was like great thanks <sighs> so anyways yeah Studying at normal schools doesn't work for me. Ended up at private art schools, and they were much better for me, for sure. It was. I, I actually managed to finish a degree 
a bachelor's in English, which I, when I found out, wait, we read books and then we talk about them. That's, that's what the major is. But it was going on with literature that I realized I was going to have to study other people who studied literature and it became increasingly about theory. And then I was like, I mean, similar to you, I was like, no, no, I want to do my own stuff. It kind of feels like a little bit of like inside baseball, like like you're writing about people that write about people that write. Like it's just a little too in depth. Too many iterations away from the the thing itself, I think. Yeah. Oh, I found it interesting. Okay, so you and it's funny because I did the same thing. So this is what it's fascinating to me. You have a BA and then a BFA and then an MFA. I did yeah. the same thing. I have a BA from University of Iowa, then a B. FA from the Corcoran and then a B MFA from San Francisco. And you did the same sort of thing. But why did you do that? Yeah. I know why I, I know why I did it. So why <laughs> did you do that? So what happened at, at Michigan where I got my undergrad, which I loved. I, I mean, I did. I love my experience there. I wasn't particularly strong academically. And near the end, I started let me go back. I have to say something else that had happened earlier that I forgot to tell you is also when I was when I was probably 11 or 12, my parents and my grandfather, one of my grandfathers who was still alive, gave me stuff to build a, a makeshift darkroom in the closet. And we had this kind of house that had giant closets. So they let me use this closet off the bathroom to make a darkroom. I wasn't super disciplined. And as you know, with photography, you know, when you're an undisciplined 11 year old, <laughs> It can, I made a lot of mistakes and I made a mess, but I, but I loved it. But then I stopped doing photography in, in high school, I think because I was a, an athlete. And I think somehow the idea of being an artist and an athlete, you weren't allowed to do both. So then when I went to college, I, I always knew I loved photography, but I, I couldn't take photo classes until the very end because of the way the registration worked and everyone wanted to take photo. So I took photo the last three semesters I was there and I got to the end of my last semester. I'm like, wait, this is what I want to do. This is it. And they're like, you know, you're done. So I spent, I only spent a semester thinking, okay, maybe I want to go to grad school. And I applied to a post-bac program at, at school, the Air Institute of Chicago. And they were like, hmm, we don't have one and you don't have enough experience. So how about you come get a BFA? And it took me about, I would, there, were, there were a couple of days there where I was like, wait, I just finished one. And then I was like, okay. And it was before it was insanely expensive to, to do something like that. I mean, now it seems like it would be a crazy decision. I mean, it was still kind of a crazy decision. So I was like, okay. And it was much more, it was much more me. It was much more, I, I don't know if I fit in better at art school, but I definitely studying or making art just all of a sudden I was like, wait, this is what I was supposed to be doing. Not that it was, I was particularly great at it or that it was easy or anything, but it just felt like I was in the right skin. I think. How did you end up there? Yeah. I'm not sure if I fit in at art school, but and, no, you know, does anyone fit in at art school? Yeah, I know. That's sort of the irony is like, it's a bunch of outcasts and, and, you know, cultural or like abnormal people trying to be, you know, together somehow. So yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I fit in. I mean, there was there were still cliques even in my art school. Oh, yeah. You know, and there were the 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 teachers' pets and the the outcasts and all, all that kind of. There's still all of that. I don't know if I fit in. 
but I had fun. Unfortunately, I'm still paying for it. So still through my student loans, but yeah, hopefully Biden will do something about that. You know, who knows? Um, why did I, I ended up at my, because uh, similar, like I finished my BA and I applied to a couple of schools and they all were like, yeah, your work's not quite good enough for an MFA program. And they said, Hey, why don't you go for a, a BFA before and sort of get your portfolio in order and sort of even my, my techniques and my ideas, yeah. like make my ideas better because like they said, my, I wasn't mature enough in my ideas, uh, to get to go for an MFA at that point, which was totally legitimate. So I said, sure. So I did. And it was good. I have no, no regrets. Yeah, same same here. I mean, it sounds very similar that I I wasn't I wasn't ready. I mean, similarly, right after there, I applied for an MFA and I didn't get in. And in retrospect, be, having been on those committees now, I I'm like, I was good enough, but I was not ready. And I was like, wow. I mean, I think I was good enough, but I was like, wow, that was smart of them to be like, she's not ready at. And also, it would have been like. It would have been like a hundred years of call of, of education without a break. I mean, some somehow, or maybe, and maybe I wasn't good enough, you know, I mean, but anyway, I, I think that, that in retrospect is something you can say when you're a little older, it was like all those rejections from all those MFA programs when I was right out of my, my BFA, when I'd been in college for eight years and they were like, you know, maybe you're not, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be in it. It was seven. It was seven. Yeah. Okay. Because like my I, four years of undergrad, then two, then I got a BFA in two more years is all they made me do. So I got it in six. So I'm exaggerating one year. So I did what I did with my first, with my BA is I took a semester off. My father was living in Denmark. So I took a semester off and lived with him. So I graduated a semester late and then, and I took a semester. Well, it wasn't a semester off. There was an in-between my gap semester between my two BAs or B, bachelor's degrees. And then it was two and a half at the Art Institute. And then I graduated in December and they did the, the, the actual graduation ceremony in June. So it felt like it ended up being You do not years, have to but... defend yourself. It's perfectly <laughs> fine. I was, <laughs> I was old by the time I felt old to be graduating from. Oh, uh, well, I mean, in hindsight, it's funny. I hadn't even thought about this until we're now talking about this, but like I, they probably should not have accepted me into a master's program because I was still a sort of a drug addict at the time. I was doing a lot of cocaine and heroin and things like this during my BFA program. And after my BFA program ended, I quit cold Turkey and then started like six months after having gotten clean, I then started applying for master's programs. And that's when I was able to sort of successfully find a math master's program. So there is also that element of a little bit of maturity of choosing to, you know, quit those childish ways and, uh, and grow up. So was art helpful for you? I mean, was being in art school helpful during that time in your life? I mean, did you find that it, it was a, which time, the clean time or the drug the cl time? The, well, actually, in some ways, both, right? Because there's the, not that I know that much, but there's arguments for both sides. I actually meant when you were in the MFA, I meant that, you know, the... It was horribly ironic. I moved to San Francisco to not do drugs, which okay. is just like wrong. 
Like, I mean, that's, you know, that's where you go to like smoke the best pot and get the best LSD and all that stuff. And I, I went there clean. So that was interesting in and of itself, but that my education was phenomenal. Like they were, it was the, by far the best education I had of all my educations, not to say my other ones were bad, but the, the program was great. The people, I made great friends. Um, and then, uh, it, it has still affected me to this day. Like I ended up getting my degree in new genre art, which oh, yes. <laughs> sounds very pompous and arrogant, I know, and which I kind of enjoy. But it's um, it was more about the idea of making a piece of art the where the idea was the primary. Right. And, and so like it was more important that your idea was really interesting. And then how it manifested was could have been in any medium. So like, you know, any given day I would be sitting in a studio talking with my, my peers and my faculty and they would, we would literally have to look at like a performance piece, a video piece of printmaking, sculpture, painting, and a photography series. And just talk, everybody in there would have to learn how to eloquently discuss any of them as art, not as whatever medium so like right. when, you, when you go into a photo class you're talking about photos and so you can be like so what kind of camera did you use what lens did you use what paper did you print this on all this stupid technical bullshit that doesn't actually matter in the end right right it's interesting because my grad program ended up being a little bit more like that it was at mills college it was very small and i ended up going to school well you probably know because it's the same i don't know maybe you don't but the same the same thing where my cohort was wasn't only a couple photographers and I ended up hanging out with electronic musicians, which played into my later life a lot, uh, not that much later. But that was great. It was so great to have to to get away. I mean, photography, too, has the, the geekiness of photography, which I am sometimes seduced by. I have to admit, I, I exist on the line where I can be pulled into it's I can be love talking about that but i also ultimately am much more interested in talking about the ideas and the the breaking the boundaries of of the medium i can go back and forth most uh, yeah oh i love my gear as much as anybody else but i also don't i'm a little tired of like people being snobbish like oh your lens doesn't have a red ring around it oh, or yeah. you know all kind of stupid shit like this and i'm just like uh, it's exhausting, especially these days, because like there are some phenomenal cameras and phenomenal artists who do not use the best equipment yeah. necessarily, but can make amazing, expressive ideas through it. So there's no need for that amazing equipment to be able to be making beautiful works. It's true. I wonder, I'm not something out there. I wonder if I, I as a, as a, I, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman, but as very early age, going into a photo store was a little bit of an alienating feeling. And I'm not really good at talking tech. I'm, I'm an intuitive knower. And I would go into photo stores until actually relatively recently and walk out feeling like I didn't know anything or I'd under talk myself or there'd be this like bravado in photo stores. And I hated it. And I hated going in there. And so that particular dialogue, I, I rejected it pretty early on, like talking about lenses and quality of gear. Only recently I've become confident enough to to actually go in. And I still, I still like undersell how much I know. I don't like that competition, but then I also walk out thinking, 
I feel uncompetitive actually, weirdly, but I mean, you're, you're nodding your head. So probably, <laughs> you know, exactly. Yeah. I hate that world. Well, I used to work in a photography store and uh, yeah, it's very much a boys club. Like uh, there was an older guy, uh, Frank, very lovely man. But he, like, if a, another older photographer would come in, he'd be like, oh, yeah, hey, we got some great stuff in the back. Let me get you the good stuff. And then if some young lady who was, let's say, in school comes in, he'd be like, yeah, that's all we got. And, like, oh, wow. he, would, he wouldn't help her at all. And uh, it was it, it is very much an old boys club, uh, or it has traditionally been. I'm hoping it has changed. I haven't been working in that industry for 20 years now. But let's hope it's gotten better. I think, yeah, yeah. From what I can see, and obviously I'm not in that deep industry, but I, it does seem like there's some changes happening, I hope. We hope there's always changes in all industries. But you brought up the idea of like how you find your concepts and things like this, and that's something actually I wanted to ask you about, which is your works are, your series of works that you've done over your career are reasonably sort of different in their subject matters and stuff. So like, how do you come to an idea that says, that's an idea worth making a series about. I think I just often just throw everything at the wall that I possibly can and see if it sticks and then see if I have the ability to follow through with it. That's a flip answer. Kind of. It's, yeah. But yeah it works. I think it's, it's, I, I do like, I mean, I have ADHD and I don't know if that is part of it, but I, I've thought a lot about defining what it is to experience that. And I know a lot of people know, but it's just like, idea like it's also almost an assault of ideas like I'm, my brain is always thinking of ideas and most of them are bad or actually more importantly most of them i don't have the attention span to 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 take them so partly that's just like figuring out how idea management so and your question at at its core kind of is how do you decide what ideas are are worth investing in and I've also recently had a friend tell me who's married to someone with with ADD and that one of the problems is your inability to to prioritize. And so it's interesting because this question comes back to that, right? Like, how do I prioritize? And so maybe it isn't a flip answer because I, you know, I'll get tons of ideas and usually they they come from, I mean, I think my everyday life, although I don't know if that's true either because I'll read the newspaper and I'll think, all right, somebody should make, you know, somebody should make a computer program that simulates, you know, I won't go into that idea, but I have like ideas that run through my head. So I think what I would say is one of the things is there's attrition, there's staying focused. And then, you know, through the years of, of me being a in grad school, I did it. I just kept going because it was grad school and 24 hours a day, you just, you just created work. So I would have an idea and I'd just try it and just, and then the faculty would be like, yeah, or this one. And that was, that was grad school. And then afterwards I had, I had little kids and I kept thinking, how do I, how do I use this experience to make work? But not like, I mean, like, like all parents, I was like, I don't want it artist. I was like, I don't want it to be like everyone else's, but so the boundaries almost forced me to like, to, to take those ideas. But I think ultimately I think it's, yeah, now I don't even have an answer. This is like the most basic question. This is like, what's your favorite color? Um, oh, no, 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 
There are more, much more basic questions that I try not to even ask because they're just <laughs> damn obvious. But I mean, well, okay. Well, I'll give you an example. Like for me, uh, what I'll often do is I often will be working on multiple projects at the same time because I find that if I devote all of my time, energy, emotion, and everything like this into one project, I get burned out on it super fast. And so being able to sort of flip between different projects, so like I'll work on one as far as I can, and then sort of just come to a stopping point and I stop, put it aside, and then work on another one, basically until I run out of whatever motivation, interest, whatever. Uh, and then I stop and then I go back. You know, so like I'll have two, between two or three projects going at any given time in order just to keep me fresh and to allow me some time and distance to be able to then look back and go, no, wait, I was going in the wrong direction there. Wait, I should go in a different direction in order to keep the series going well. But I want to sort of caveat this with my series of works are generally 20 pieces by them all done. I've seen you do series up to like 250 series of images. <laughs> yeah. Like, so how do you keep up the, the, the interest in a subject even for like being able to come up with 250 really great photos? I couldn't do that. And that's actually, it's funny as you're talking, I'm starting to understand my own process a little bit more. And I think it's a combination between what, what you're talking about. I mean, I have, I've, I've had several projects that are really long-term and really high volume. And in fact, I'm still feel challenged by a lot of them because I don't know what to do at the end. But I think like you, having multiple projects go on at the same time, I don't think it's something I choose to do. I think, I feel like it's a cop-out often. Like I'm, I'll do, I'll do these long-term projects and I'll do it for a long time. And then I'll be doing another one Practically, I think when my kids were little, that was just how I had to f function or how I told myself. But what you talk about with the, the you know, photographing the the thirteen year olds, partly I had I had funding and I had support to do that and the expectation and I'd written out a proposal and I actually did wanna like I was like, do we need to have two fifty? How how about a hundred at this at hundred and fifty I get to a point where I was getting bored with that's not true. I was I had a hard place. I was getting the same. I felt like I was the the people I was photographing, the kids I was photographing, felt like I was getting the same answers. And I was actually at this point where I was like, Who, "Why do I have to? This number is arbitrary. I picked it. No one's going to force me to to go to 250." I had a grad student who was my assistant say, "You need to push." She's like, "You're going to be talking about this for a long time, and if you don't push now," you're going to be really sorry. And it was right. And I did. And I pushed it. And I ended up getting more diverse kids. And I ended up pushing myself to that next place that I was afraid of. So one another answer I might have is I depend a lot on people around me. I enlist them to push me or whether it's a deadline or whether it's like relying on early on my ex-husband or my partner now to be like, you know, now holding my feet to the fire to push things through. That doesn't mean I, there are a lot of projects I don't finish or that, that are sitting in boxes or my studio's filled with like so many unfinished ideas. I'm like ashamed to admit it publicly, but like for every one that gets through, there's like 10 more at one level and a hundred more at the other level. Absolutely. I have an entire series of pastel uh, drawings that I've done that it will never see the light of day. 
I think that might be okay. Oh, you need me to tell you it's okay. I'm telling yeah, you it's do. okay. Yes. Make me feel better. That's this. This is all just psychology for me. So that's fine. Within that though, something that I want to know about is, okay, so let's say you have a project that has 250 images in it, which to me just sounds ridiculously large, but how do you know when you're done? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, with that one in particular, I had set that goal. And, and so that was a, that was kind of a finite, even from the beginning. But I mean, I could talk about another project where I specifically where I photograph my daughter every day, which it started as a project that I thought was going to be one year at first. And then I just kept going. And then I fantasized that it was going to go until she was 18. And then because it was work about my everyday life. It was work in, it was integrated into my life. And that comes back to your earlier question, I think of how do I, how do I find ideas and how do I kind of know? So, so this was the daily photos I took of my daughter. And I, I knew I was out of grad school. I knew that I was using my everyday life in this way that was, I won't say a Faustian bargain, but it was definitely like a trade-off to be able to make work and and be a parent and do that sometimes do them at the same time and make use the ideas of my everyday life to express myself and what what happened specifically with that project is my life changed the project whether it was how the outside world perceived the work causing me to like rethink a lot about my relationship with my daughter and my family or the fact that it was an everyday project that became collaboration with you know my daughter's father and then when we got separated the the project ended up well basically frank and madeline stopped being invested in it that's kind of an extreme i mean that one came to an end in a way that i hadn't anticipated but i had also knew that i was trying to make art about life and so it took many years afterwards for me to come back to it and say oh the way it ended was actually artistically really great it was emotionally and personally pretty painful and that's kind of an extreme, like I didn't, it ended because it had to, and I didn't realize that it was an interesting ending until, until I could look back on it years later. So that was a, that, that's where like probably the psychology and the psychologist background, like being able to look back and say, oh, psychologically, that's really interesting. But there's also a simple answer. And that's often when I, when I start repeating, right? When the work stops being interesting, another body of work was when my kids got taller than me. And that sounds really silly, but I've only realized that recently too, is the pictures of them stopped getting interesting when I started pointing the camera up at them. I'm sure there's all metaphors related to that. And I'm sure it wasn't just about the fact that they were they were taller, they're both bigger than I am now. And that changed, it changed how I felt about them, not because, I don't love them, but I could I almost like I couldn't protect them anymore. And I don't know why that was connected to making art, but the pictures got a lot less interesting when they got they got taller than I am. Those are kind of specific examples. So I think those are great examples. No, no, no. That's okay. no, this is what I'm looking at. Keep okay. in mind the whole reason for the podcast is to hear the specific stories of everybody's life experiences, because maybe I cannot relate directly to it, but there's some metaphor in there or something that I'm going through that I can also be like, 
oh, well, that's why I didn't whatever this thing or that thing. So like total specific specificity is fabulous. So do not, yeah, try not (laughs) to talk vague because nobody relates to vague. Like, you know, like, you know, I mean, like how many times do you hear like, you know, don't worry, be happy. And like, you're like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) You know I mean? It's so fucking vague that it means nothing. So like, you know, specificity is where we all get the the greatest inspiration. I yeah, I just wanted to tag on to what you said too about making work about being a parent and and often being a, a mother. Although I I'm uncomfortable with it, I'm I get more more and more uncomfortable the more niche. And it it is really important to me to I really hope that I'm able to make work that's as you said a about the experience so much that it doesn't become about the category. And that even loops back to what we're talking about, about photography and about like the specific, I've never been comfortable in like mother's groups or like specifically photo groups. Cause I've never, I never liked that label. I never liked this idea of that. The label is what defines me, even though there's times where having community is important or the, I'll keep making the photo geek analogy. I mean, it's fun to talk gear for a little while, but it gets very boring if you can't transcend it. And I feel that way about my work. I feel like, I I know it's not true of all of it, but I really hope that people who aren't specifically who aren't mothers, but who aren't parents or all these backgrounds or even trying to make work about having ADHD. I mean, it's not, we can sit around, people with ADHD can sit around for hours and hours and talk about it. And that's not that interesting. It's interesting to, bring other people into the experience. So anyway, that was a long answer, but. Well, which in and of itself, it's very funny to hear that people with ADHD can sit around for hours and talk about anything. It's, <laughs> I'm doing another project where I'm interviewing people from diff- with different identity traits that I share. And I'm having a hard time. I've got videos and videos that I haven't edited yet. The ones with the ADHD people, they're like two hours and I'm terrified to start even listening to those videos and figure out where to go and they're really fun to do so sure well i when i'm done editing these podcasts i rarely listen back to any of them because it's just like i don't want to hear what stupid shit i said ridiculous (laughs) so like that so okay something i noticed about some of your work so this is not all of your work but i'm sort of i was specifically looking at the to be 13 series of images the portraits are beautiful. They, you know, they're elegant. I think if I remember correctly, you shot these on four by five, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they're elegant. The, the lighting's gorgeous. The poses are very natural and very sort of uh, just sort of uh, engaging in many ways. But they individually, like they, I feel like they needed some more context. And so the question is like, how important is then the, the text or titles or any sort of written statements that you put with your works versus the production of the images themselves? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that work and, and specifically, I mean, because it had, had the video component too. And when I first started doing that, I imagine that I would be the kind of photographer that would make these like individually profoundly beautiful. In fact, that project in and of itself, I imagined that we would pick 20 pictures that would be, and people would be like, these are brilliant. We and what happened? That. Yeah. I know. <laughs> About everything we make. I know. It's, it's true. And it was definitely a process. 
on one hand of discovering I'm going to go off topic a little. I'll get back to that. But that discovering that the strongest work that I made, well, when I started making the interviews, so I made the interviews concurrent, but it took maybe 10 kids to kind of get in the rhythm. And then I was, I was some, I was actually in Las Cruces. I was actually staying with my friend, David Taylor. I interviewed this kid. He, I interviewed this kid in Tucson. I got to Las Cruces and we sat down and watched the video. And this, it was like, the video was a hundred times better than any of the pictures I'd taken. And it was less me. I know it was less me. I thought like less me interfering. There was just something about a hundred times, maybe not, but like all of a sudden I realized like the videos were doing something that I couldn't get in the still pictures. And so I started realizing that this project was, I was learning from the videos the pictures were like my territory back to the photo geek thing, like where I, I knew how to control it more or less. I was comfortable. And then I started making these videos and they started to unleash something that I, I hadn't even preconceived would happen. I mean, uh, not unlike, right. You have these conversations for your podcast and you, you're going to see what happens. I never know what's good. We're going to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And that was exciting. So that I think what happened with that work was there was the control, more control of the photographs. Oh my gosh. I'm turning off the whole phone completely. I'm so sorry. It's so unprofessional of me. It's perfectly okay. It happens all the time. It's usually children come running into the room or yeah. something like that. Yeah. For me, if I leave my Outlook Express on, I get like an email and I get the bing bing thing. All right. So it's real life. Yeah. It's perfectly fine. But the question is, I mean, I think the question comes back to when I'm teaching too about artist statements and I don't want to, to explain too much, but I also like, I mean, we'd all like to be able to be, I think the photographer that can make the single picture that can go out into the world and doesn't need any explanation. And everybody's totally like, they understand everything. They have a transcendent experience. Um, and you know, I, I think I don't have the patience or the talent or maybe that's just a myth. Anyway, I don't know. Well, to a certain extent, I do think it's a myth because like a lot of times I will see some of these historical photos that, you know, I can think of sort of the iconic images that people are like, oh, this thing represents this time period and all that. And it says how everybody was feeling at this time and all. And I'm like, yeah, but it's only interesting because you have to put it into that context of that time. So you have to understand what was going right. on at that time in order to say, oh, you're right. That's an iconic thing of that time. So every photo, no matter how much we all sit around and we're like wishing that we can make that iconic image that represents a, a, a time period or an oeuvre or a, or a genre or whatever kind of word we want to put to it, it'll never happen. It never did happen. It, you yeah. always had to have some additional context with it. So even if it was just a title or some additional images to put more context to the one image or, uh, or a curator saying, no, this is worthy of being right. in a whatever. So like some outside influence, some outside contextualization that somehow made it more important. It was never just the one photo. As it's much funny. as we all wish it was. I, we do. And I wonder if it's a result of, for me, and I'm, I'm guessing that you're not too far behind me age-wise, but this, when I came of age in art and photography was, 
the beginning or kind of, I mean, there's still this vestige of modernist teaching and photography of the idea that at the same time, extreme kind of postmodernism kind of clashing, but there was also this idea that the picture itself shouldn't need anything extra. And that if you are a real artist, you know, and it's funny because when you talk about studying new genres, which was like the other end, and there's like this kind of these conversations going on where either everything is like totally explained and totally intellectualized. And there's like artist statements that, you know, make you go crazy because they're in they're you know, they're going to infer stuff that's not there or kind of talk about these ideas and you're like, eh. but then there's just like the super very deeply problematic modernist idea that the picture exists outside. I mean, I know I'm giving like an art, a really basic art history lesson, but I, I feel like, I waver between those two and there's some kind of internalized, like it's some kind of super ego in me. That's like, but really you should ultimately should be making these pictures. And, and maybe it's cause I'm not a very good writer or something like that, but the. Well, see, that's my position. Okay. I believe that people who get into the visual arts generally get in because we can't express ourselves in whatever way effectively outside of visual medium. So whether it's painting, sculpting, photography, doesn't matter, but we're not good writers. If we were good, like when I was an undergraduate, I, I, they, I applied for this, I don't even remember what it was, some fellowship or something like this. And they said, oh, and, and please write two pages about your work. And I was like, and so I wrote in really big font that took up two pages. <laughs> I said, if, if I wanted to be, if I wanted to write about my work, I would have been a writer. Needless to say, I did not get that grant or whatever it was, <laughs> but it felt good to say yeah. that because yeah. I'm a little tired of this incessant need of the arts industry for us to not only make beautiful, I shouldn't even say beautiful, make expressive, cohesive, creative uh, expressions of our ideas, but to then also eloquently write about it when we chose not to be writers, but when we chose to be in the visual mediums. Right. Right. And I think that that's writing also is a, it's a different, it is a different medium and it reduces the potential for understanding. I do think people want, they want to be led. They want to be told what they're saying. And I resist that. Although, and I do think that's different from the question that, that you asked. I think I, I pulled it back to this. I do think where's the space in between, where's the space between the, the photograph or, or the object or the experience or what, what does it take for an experience to be whole and cohesive? And you started by talking about the, the 13 year old project. And I think that, you know, I do think that that work, that work went beyond me in a lot of ways that I didn't expect. And a lot of the things that I thought it should be, like, I thought it should be a short edit and, the designer and the curator both said, no, this is about all 250 kids. And at first I was like, well, but they're not all good. And how do we include that? What I learned from them was one, you, other people can help you figure out what your work is meaning, but that also back to your question at the beginning, I think this idea that work can be put together not that an artist statement that explains it, but pieces that create a whole that's much more complex and much more interesting than I have a, one more thing I want to add to that about that project is I had an exhibition 
in Phoenix of it. There was a, there was a video and then there were the, the pictures, the large pictures, and then there were chosen pictures. And then every single, all 250 still images were shown boarding the show. And there was a teen council to the Phoenix Museum. And the teen council got this idea that they were going to have a room where people wrote a letter to their 13-year-old self. Thousands of people. Like 80-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 14-year-olds, even some 11-year-olds. Thousands of people wrote letters to themselves. I cannot take credit for it directly or thinking of the idea. I feel like that is the most, maybe one of the most important things I've ever been a part of. Like, I don't even feel like, I, where do you claim authorship for something like that? There's this experience that these people had. The letters are fantastic. And I guess that's a circuitous way of answering your question, I think, about what do things need and how do you let things grow and how do you let things go beyond yourself? How do you balance the the artist's ego where you want to be, you want to be the thing. You want to be the, It's for me, it's the most profound thing I did. I didn't really do it. Like somebody else did it. And we're also a bit of control freaks as well. Like oh, we definitely. Definitely want to be. So like to allow for something else or lack of control over our of ourselves is also a very uh, difficult thing to do sometimes as well. It's huge. Yeah. Indeed. Um, okay. I have a question. So I, I have a couple other those sort of points of things that I just want to get to. I saw that you received a Guggenheim Fellowship. I'm fascinated. Uh, to me, a Guggenheim Fellowship is like up on the the echelon of like, ooh, like you know, like holy things to receive in your life, like that, and like a a Paula Krasner kind of thing would be like like holy crap, that's like a pinnacle of a career to me, kind of mm -hmm. thing. So, tell me a little bit about like, because I, uh, to be honest, I won't even look at the application for a Guggenheim because I already know that I'm not qualified for it. So, like. How did you even like get the confidence and then go through the process of writing and then, you know, the whole spiel of the, the experience of participating in a Guggenheim fellowship? It's interesting. So I thought about it for a long time. I think when I heard, I, I heard about it early on, which is weird because I'm generally wasn't that in tune to, to things like that. Not that I didn't care, but I remember hearing really early on, like to get a Guggenheim, you had to like have letters written by people who wrote Guggenheims. And I have to admit that for maybe 15 years, I was like, that was running in the back of my back of my mind. Like part of me maybe thinks that I wasn't going to be ready until I had a couple of those people in my circle. And it just, it happened that I, I had three mentors who they, and they really were mentors. They weren't people. I was just kind of like, Oh, you got a Guggenheim. And so, and it was, I don't know if the names help, but Catherine Wagner, who was my professor at Mills College, Sally Mann, who I worked for, and then, yeah, and Mark Klett, who was a, a colleague. And we'll put a pin in that Sally Mann part. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, I know. But. Okay. We'll put a pin in that. And so I had to be ready to ask them to do that. So that was the first thing is I felt like I had to be ready to ask my mentors. So that was the first kind of step for me. But then I had your question, I, how did I get to the point where I even thought that I was ready? And I don't know what happened. I just, I just thought, okay, I'm ready. 
actually I do know it was relative to this idea that I started to have about adolescence and watching my children go through adolescence. And I thought this, this idea might be good. Although let me just tell you, I didn't really think I was going to get it. I mean, I really didn't. And, and the first time I didn't, but the first time I remember after I mailed in that feeling so good that I felt ready, like, or not even ready. So good. I did it. Like I, I just had this feeling like the first time I was like, I did it. And I had heard from, I think it was, it was both Sally and Mark had, had kind of expressed this idea that you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it too many times. Like you do it a couple times. If you don't get it, I think that was Mark's idea. And Sally's was more like, make your first one really good. She was like, don't blow your first effort. So I, I had been like taking all this in. So the first time I didn't get it and I was disappointed, but I was also like, I didn't really think I had a chance. And, and, and to be, how do, how, we, how do we do this as artists? We, we, do things, we do things at once. We have the arrogance to think that we're going to get it. But also, all right, I'm going to go on a really, 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 really quick ta tangent. It was I don't know if you heard the story. It could be apocryphal about when Doris Lessing was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. She was like 83. And she was like, uh, I, I think she was told at like the grocery store. I don't know why I imagine. It's, it's, I, I think I've made it up. And she was like, 20 years too late. And my first response is like, oh, what an arrogant thing to say. And my other response is, the woman was 83. She was probably like, fuck you. Like if I was good enough now, I was good enough 20 years ago when I could have spent the money, when I could have done something with it. And so I think about as artists, we have to have this mixture of like arrogance and you have to be able to be like, you're Doris Lessing, you don't get the Nobel Prize. You should have gotten it You th according to whatever criterion or other criteria out there. You don't get it. You keep going. You continue to think you're worth it. But, but this mixture of being able to be humble and this mixture to be, to be honored. And so in short, I, I reapplied the next year. I refined my idea. It was broader. It was like middle school. I refined it specifically to 13 year olds. I think I added in the video component and I mean, who knows like what makes something like that happen? Yeah. And then I had that moment exactly as you described when this like email comes and I was like, could this be, is this possible? And then I called my partner and I started being like, oh, I forgot I said something kind of negative. She's like, you're going to make this a negative thing? And I realized that, that I had seen myself as an underdog. And it was a moment where I was like, you can't use that excuse anymore. You can't be an underdog. All these like artist psychology things that I realized like, oh, I never get it. I never get grants. Like I lost that. I lost the right the right to bitch, the right to complain, the right to be an outsider. I mean, there you go back to that idea of like, I am making it sound like a bad thing, but it was, it was pretty, it was, yeah. Anyway, I don't know if that answers your question. I, I did the same thing. I, when I started this podcast, I was railing on grants, how much I, grants are so annoying. There's, it's such a, you know, insiders kind of thing. And it's all, you know, who, who, you know, kind of thing. And, and since I started the podcast, like I, I got a big grant. So like now I can't complain anymore because like now I'm part of the system that I was railing against, which is not something you can do. So it's, it's one of those things like 
you want to be famous, but like once you once you have that like cusp of it, it's like you can't be as outsider. You're no longer the outsider. You're no longer the underdog kind of thing. And it's like, oh, now I have to like be the icon. Like I mean, it's like the transition that I had when I was being a photographer, just like being a photographer, that's all fine and good. Like, Hey, I'm a photographer. I do whatever the fuck I want to do. I take pictures of whatever I want to take pictures of. But as soon as I became a teacher, suddenly I was a mentor, somebody I was looked up to. And suddenly I was like, Oh, I have to stop cussing so much. I have to stop talking about drugs so much. I have to, well, stop doing drugs. I have to do the, you know, like I have to do all kinds of things like, because suddenly you're on the other side of something and you've become the, the thing like, you know, like I now sort of look up to you. I'm like, oh, she has a Guggenheim Fellowship. Well, she's she's right. on a different level than I am because I don't have a Guggenheim Fellowship. So I mean, it's very prestigious. I am not knocking it in any way. I'm saying, good for you. Like, and I want to know how did you do it so that that I can do it. <laughs> no, it's true, and I actually love talking about it because of that. Because I mean, maybe ultimately because of the teacher in me, but. I totally relate to like that realization that I remember when I first started teaching, I'm like, I can't be the class clown and the teacher at the same time. I was like, exactly. Then who am I? And I think the same, you're right to make that analogy that, that. I was the horrible smart ass student that made, (laughs) like made teachers cry in high school. And the iron, horrible irony is now that I'm the teacher that ends up getting all emotional at my students doing the same stupid shit to me. Right, right. That's our conversations coming full circle to the idea about generational generations, right? And and kind of realizing, and I think success, I mean, back to the, the idea of how we deal with success is also really important. And I think sometimes when we're, we develop as artists, we develop ourselves in opposition to, yeah. I mean, like you said, things that you want, and is just it that opposition we, too. That's yeah, what we do. That's exactly. It. And that has its limitations, I guess, ultimately, like, I mean, ultimately, I think as artists, we we're the opposite. We're making stuff. We're trying to, we're actually trying to enrich in what's there. We're trying to make not, I, it's not, that's try to make the world better, but richer and more complex and more interesting and to more than, I would just say our job is to make it more than to take things and transform them into things that are more meaningful than they were before. The box of paper, the film, the, you know, whatever the materials are, the pile of wood. So instead of being in opposition to, we are actually supposed to be making stuff, but that's terrifying and threatening. And I don't know, there's there's a lot of trains to go down of thought and a lot like you said, for me too, in art school, a lot of these thoughts started, uh, this idea of being contrary, but also the artist ego, like our, our like complicated, fragile, which it shouldn't be fragile. We should be even stronger because we're the ones who are just saying, how about this idea? And how about this idea? And reject. It's okay if you reject and you're critical. Yeah. Well, for me, my, my father's a minister. Uh, Episcopal minister. And so like I, he grew up or not, he grew up <laughs> when I was growing up, he was the, 
the moral and a moral compass of the community. He set the standards kind of thing. So people look to him for that. So of course I was completely contrary to that. Right. Right. And, and then in long form irony, I ended up becoming a teacher. And I mean, even by proxy a little bit, this podcast, like I'm becoming the moral compass of like the next generation kind of thing. So like, it's one of those really, really interesting things. Like we all as creative people, we want to be contrary but we also want to participate. So like I don't yeah. want to, I don't want to be contrary so contrary that nobody even acknowledges me or sees my worth or whatever or respects me. That's a huge word for me respect by the way. But but I but I need to be participating. So like yeah. It's a tough line to balance. Like I want to be outside, but I also want to be inside. Right. Right. I mean it's when you said that, it also all of a sudden explained to me something that's that as another point of tension I've always felt was this idea about teaching and creating art and that somehow one sacrifices the other. And I've worked really hard for me. I, they're, they're integral. I, I had one semester where I wasn't teaching and I realized like I just sat around that I need to the teaching to make the art, but also what you've said too about I forgot exactly how I was going to articulate it, but I think there's something really important there about a willingness to ad admit that we want to be invested and that we're, I, I guess, at the key teaching, you know, how do we teach people that both to care and to be invested, but to also take risks and also that, that kind of that impossible space, I think, that artists have to exist in and that mentoring other people to exist in that for me is really meaningful and it helps me get past that dichotomy of real artists don't don't need to teach kind of bullshit actually we're, we're always told we need to be pushing the boundaries we need to be trying something new we need to come up with something that's never been done before you know this is what we're being encouraged to do yet we're also encouraged to play within an existing system that wants us to do what's already been done before so it's very hard because they want us to work outside of the system in order to be accepted by the system yeah yeah and it's it, it, taken to one logical conclusion. It's absurd and it's it's impossible. And if you're if you're genuine, I mean, here's some if you have integrity or you're genuine, authentic, or all these words that actually have become part of the catchphrases now. But if you really are, you you'll be split into a million pieces. And I think a lot of us are trying to negotiate being a part of an institution, being a part of a system, and being authentic. I know, I feel like that word is so inauthentic. The second I use it, I'm like, Ugh, but having integrity. These now all sound like hashtags to me, unfortunately. They, they totally do. Yeah, I know. I mean, the, the authentic people I think of are like, uh, there's this guy in the Czech Republic, Tiché. Have you ever heard of him? Mm -mm. He's the, he literally was mentally unstable at, or at, like at Henry Darger or oh yeah, yeah, yeah. those kinds of people. Like, they're authentic like because he didn't give a shit like he did not think of himself as an artist he just thought of himself as i'm gonna like draw the crazy that's in my head for me right right and right. never intended for anybody else to see 
that's authentic. Like, I mean, those, those gangs, they're, they're, they make things simply because they need to make it. And it has right. no relevance to anybody else connecting with anybody else, uh, engaging in the system or anything like that. They don't care about any of that. Like this guy, Tisha, he literally made his cameras from trash. So like he, he built his wow. own cameras from garbage and then like developed it in his kitchen sink. And I mean, his, his house was a mess. Everything is destroyed. Everything, everything's got stains and tears and, and it's all it's just like made from the worst possible materials. And that's what makes them so amazing. Yeah. Is that, like he didn't care. And yet yeah. that's what like makes them, you know, that's what makes Henry Darger. That's what makes, you know, James right, Franz right. and all these other people that are like these outside quote unquote, like outsider artists, like probably the most authentic artists we have. Right. Yeah. And it begs a lot of interesting questions. I mean, you, you can't exist. Most people can't exist there. It's on the edge of, of, you know, in the in I mean all the mythology about about mental illness and art, but this these boundaries are really interesting. And then these boundaries, these edges, like taking things, how far can you go to the edge, and how much do you want to be in the system? I mean, I guess then there's there's gradations too, right? With with that, which I think becomes well, yeah, but then there there are also different systems as well. There's the right market which is like selling art then there's the institutional system which would be sort of exhibiting sort of system so like though even in and of itself the art world is sort of split like either you're a selling artist or you're an exhibiting institutional artist and that's those are two very different worlds that often don't overlap right yeah that's a whole other interesting question too about i mean even i mean back to the guggenheim question of Actually, it, it could even I could even talk a, a little bit about about Sally Mann in relation to that about this idea of of how much how much you are what what does it mean when you're in the system and then what constitutes success in the system and the idea too of I think the negative forces that that inform a lot of us as artists this idea of envy this apocryphal quote I heard once that supposedly Richard Avedon at Arbus's funeral said. I mean, who knows if this is true either. I wish I, I wish I could be an artist like she was. And someone said, no, you don't. But it was like the idea. And I remember as a young person thinking, wait a second, Richard Avedon envied Arbus. I mean, of course we all do, but then you're like, no, I mean, it was her funeral too, for God's sake. Right. But this, that nobody's happy, right. That nobody's, everybody's envious of other people. Which I don't, I, that's also a myth that's problematic too, right? A, a myth to think that that being d deeply unhappy is also part of being an artist. Because I, I think that's a problem as well. But I do think this, like, so you talk about, I mean, the Guggenheim was a big one. It was a big, like, okay, I can, I can always say I have that. And it sounds stupid that that matters, but it, like, it's a little bit of a ability to be like, okay, so... This gallery, nobody can sell my work. Like I don't, my work doesn't sell. So whatever. Uh, and I maybe I don't try. Okay. <laughs> should, we, should we put a pin in that as well for yeah, later? Yeah, put a pin in that. Okay. A pin in that. Okay. So anyway, I didn't mean to to go off, but I think, and for me, living with and and working for Sally Mann gave me an insight into into insecurities that were. It was really good for me to see that that's idea of self-doubt 
no matter how much success you get, there's still self-doubt is all essential basically to keep yourself making art, making meaningful art. I think, I think that, I mean, with Sally, it's a little bit a part of who she is and her performance, but I do think it's, I think it's genuine too. I think that like every time you try something new, if you know it's going to work, that's boring, I guess. I I admire Sally Mann to no end. I mean, I may not love every series she's ever produced, but I really admire how she has done her career and many, many, and many of the images are very powerful to me because she was of my time, you know, like she, she was the, the, she was, I think I was finishing up my BFA when she sort of just put out at 12. And so like that became sort of the big oh, thing. So we are the same age, aren't the, we? So the, the I like, new myself. Book. like everybody's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. Gotta look yeah. this new book. Yeah. You know, so like, yeah. I mean, she's very much uh, influential in, in my, my, my sphere for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I always wonder about her, you know, cause she is a bit reclusive, um, and she does do a lot yeah. of interviews and things like this. So like, she's a bit, uh, I, I hope someday there'll be a bit more, I know she wrote a book recently, the memoirs that, uh, that I haven't read yet. I apologize for that, Sally, if you're listening, it's, but you know, I'll sorry. get around to it, you know, but here i'll give you I, you brought up richard avedon this is my sort of like this was a, a crushing blow to me at one point in my career i had just graduated from my ba and i had gotten a job working as richard avedon's assistant oh and i was like well that's amazing and so i was living in iowa and i was to fly to new york and i was supposed to be there on monday and i and i I had to call him and I said, I can't make it on Monday because I have to graduate. So like, I literally like have to walk across the, the, you know, get my diploma, all that kind of crap. Can I come on Tuesday? And he said, if you can't come on Monday, I don't want you. Shit. And that's it. Conversation was done. And I'm like, wow. Okay. On the one hand, that would have been an amazing opportunity, but on the other hand, holy shit, what a fucking asshole. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wow. So, wow. Yeah. I mean, those were ground rules, right? You immediately knew what you weren't going to be dealing with or what you were if you had decided to skip your graduation. Wow. I couldn't skip my grand. My, my grandparents no, had already bought not. their tickets. Hotels were booked. Like I couldn't do that to all my family and all that. So I was like, fuck it. So I, I, I gave up the opportunity to work for Richard Avedon. So that my grandparents and my parents could see me walk across the stage. Yeah, you made the right choice. Yeah, you know, you I, I wonder. <laughs> I, I mean, well, I mean, uh, do I think yes? You know, emotionally, family, you know, that kind of stuff. Absolutely, the right choice. But then, when you look back on your career, I'm like, hmm, professionally, was that the best choice? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I think that 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 gets to the core of some other things, though. That like you chose who you were in a way that was like making a choice about, wow, that's a good story. That's a, I feel like it's a sad story, but you know, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I've heard that he's very difficult to work with. Um, and so it took a certain kind of person to be able to work for and with him. And I quite honestly, I don't believe I, I would have lasted as his assistant. So yeah. Probably yeah. better in the long run. 
Yeah, there's a, a lot of it triggering a lot of thoughts about about that and about egos. And I think, you know, I and I don't want to make this all about Sally because I could talk a lot. It was a really I mean, the, I, we're, we continue to be close friends. And I think it was a really intense experience. And I think I mean, she does. She she is driven and she has a huge ego. But ultimately, learning from her and being with her, at, she was a great mentor. She's not like a natural teacher, like she would not, but she, I learned so much about so many things from her and she would, you know, she's definitely not like about using her assistance to build her ego in that way at all. And I think that that's interesting. I've heard similar stories about other, will not be named high, high level fashion photographers or, or, and how they treat assistants becoming part of building a system of this is what you do to people when you get power. And I don't think that's the only way to do it, but obviously, wow. Anyway, it's a good story. Yeah, maybe the story is better than the experience actually, don't you think? <laughs> maybe you I'll tell you, to- I constantly joke with my wife over and over about the fact that I keep telling her that what I really want my life to lead up to by the time I pass away, hopefully decades from now, is, is that I want a lot of good stories. I want my life to have been a lot of good stories. I don't want to hear, yes, I did my job well, or yes, I whatever. Like, I mean, I don't want to work a job or do a life that basically I don't have any great stories. To me, that's the best part of life is not only to have experienced something, but then to be able to tell a great story from that experience. That's to me, that's the best part of life. No, that's why doing a podcast is probably a really great thing for you. Well, you know, also my dad's a minister and I'm a teacher. Oh yeah. This this all kind of fits together. (laughs) It's kind of all coming together. Yeah. All right. So I noticed on your CV that you do portfolio reviews for Lens Culture, specifically they're online, so lensculture.com. I also do these. These are these anonymous reviews, which I really quite enjoy to do in many ways. It's a bit tedious and annoying in other ways, but I really love them because the fact that they've constructed them in a way that they are anonymous. So I, as a reviewer, can be a little, I feel like I can be a little bit more honest with the reviews because they don't know who I am. But on the same hand, I know that they probably would get more out of it if they did know who was doing the reviews kind of thing. So like they would understand the perspective that was being brought to them. So anyways, that's all about my experiences. How have your experiences been doing, you know, any form of portfolio reviews and or reviews anonymously on lens culture? Just recently through another interview process, a a woman who is a teacher that I know talked about, we're talking about things going online. And she mentioned that she's, she's Indian descent. She's a woman. And she said, teaching online this last semester, she got more respect than she's gotten before. And I think that that connects to what you're saying. I hadn't thought about that with the lens culture reviews when I was doing it pretty intensively at a time when I wasn't teaching one, it was filling something I needed to be able to give my opinion. But some people push back in this way where I don't know if you've ever gotten this feedback, like, who are you? And like, who are you to say this? And I was like, I got really close to writing, like, mention the Google. <laughs> I got really close to start mentioning like my CV. And I thought, that's not the point. And the ability to listen to people 
people making really crafting really good criticism in that time timely manner right because the, these reviews when you get paid it's piecemeal work right it's bed economy or gig economy bed economy so there's this balance between giving people you know giving people something that felt really valuable and being honest but then not being cruel right so i thought it was an interesting challenge the, the system is is built in a very interesting way where basically we as the reviewers get to choose who we think we can give good feedback right. to so the i'm not given some like absolutely horrible portfolio that i'm like oh i've got to say something nice about this and it's just atrocious so like i get to choose and i can say okay i think i can say something to this person and help them in some way so there is a certain amount of like I think I have something beneficial for them. But in the same way, you're right. Sometimes I get people pushing back because they do really like my thing is, is like there are certain people that take criticism well and certain yes. people who do not take yes. criticism well. I have generally found through my experiences, anybody who defines themselves as professional does not take criticism well. Oh, interesting. Because they think they've made it. Correct. They think they're there. Yeah. 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 I, so I've, I've stopped doing reviews for anybody who lists themselves uh, self-defined as professional because I know they're going to be a pain in the ass. Interesting. So just one more thing that I noticed about lens culture is there were a few people, because we can read a little bit about them, and there's a few people that came up and I was like, all right, this is someone at my level. And I often found that they, when they were at, and this sounds really, at a very high level, the kind of person that would be reviewing themselves, they were actually usually pretty good about taking it. I don't know. Maybe you didn't find it that way. I had one experience that just put a bad taste in my mouth. Somebody wrote back a very nasty email to me um, about like basically saying like, I'm very good and I'm very well respected and who the hell are you to give me this feedback? And I'm just like... Well, then why did you ask for it? it was, that's exactly why. Did you just want someone to say how great you are? I mean, that's like. Yeah. Do, do, I want to be really clear you know, because in case somebody from Lens Culture hears this, like yeah. I, I enjoy working for Lens Culture. And I think overall, the entire project of sort of giving port online reviews is fabulous. Yeah. So, like, you know, I am in no way discouraged by that or dissuaded by that. But there are those random people that just. I, you know, basically like, I think when people choose to have a portfolio review, they need to be ready for the feedback, positive or negative, specifically yeah. more than negative and be ready for that. Because like, I've been a review person, like I've, I have sat in right. portfolio reviews and they have been soul crushing. Like people, like they'll just sit there and be like, so why do you think this is interesting? I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. Hey, you yeah. don't. I, I got yeah. it. Yeah. You know, and, and you have to know, you have to be willing to take the feedback of like, you're not there yet. Yeah. I, to this day, hate it when people, when I find out that my work isn't what I think it is, but, and it makes me mad. And, and then I'm really grateful that someone's telling me that. You know, I recently had a guest on the podcast who I then, who was a curator who I then off mic asked them to review my work and they, um, they just ripped into me. They just like, just did not like my work at all. <laughs> I'm just wow. like, I'm like, oh, okay. I thought we were going to be friends. All right. I guess not. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, uh, but don't get me wrong. 
all legitimate feedback. Like yeah. everything yeah. that they ripped into yeah. me about. Yeah. I I was crushed for like a week. I was like, why am I still doing this work? Oh my God, this person absolutely hates it. It's just ridiculous. I don't know what I'm doing. But I'm still in the process of doing it. So I have the ability to make changes, you know. So like right. there, there's an interesting shift of like I love getting feedback while I'm still working on something, but once it is completed and it's out yeah. in the world, just ex either you accept it, but just don't give me any negative feedback once it's completed. Yeah. Yeah. That's my ego. I think there's different and, and from being a teacher, because I think that this is a huge value that art education has is that teaching people how, how to, how to take criticism and generationally this generation is is notorious this generation of for not being particularly good at that and i think they need they need that i think we all need it to be honest right that to act like ooh, this again back to that this generation but i do think that that this idea of being able to take criticism but i also think the critiquer critiquey the reviewer needs to understand what you just said is that people People need different kinds of criticism at different places in the process. And there are times where the criticism is, is going to be soul crushing and just kind of like mean. And there's times where, where the, the, maybe even the exact same criticism would be really, really useful and get people to change their track or see their work from a different way. But yeah, I think, I think that the idea, the concept of critiquing and not just critiquing criticism and engagement and, the idea of judging, you know, even teaching people that critique is different from judging, but then there is judging where you decide who gets the award and who doesn't. So well, but it's all very interesting. But judging doesn't have any critique in it because it's just, we right. award you this. Yes. It doesn't no. mean you're good, but we right. award you this. Exactly. It's totally true. Or, and you're the flavor of the month or you are, you know, you fit this demographic or I like your work and it reminds me of something that feels good to me, or I hate your work. Yeah, it's different. I mean, criticism across the board is difficult. Like, I mean, when I try to do my criticism, I try to, you know, I, I always try to stick to the idea of constructive criticism. So it's never critical for the for the intention of being malicious or mean yeah. or, or soul crushing or anything. Yeah. But, but in order to try to push people to try to do better, and sometimes that comes off as rather cold and, and mean, but sometimes people need to be pushed. Like I'm, you know, I, I constantly have these battles with my deans as a professor because I will, I will push people to figure out for themselves what's wrong. Yeah. And, and I will push them really hard because if I coddle them and feed them the answers, they learned nothing. So like the way they learn right. is by being challenged and then figuring out how to overcome that challenge. That, that's my methodology of teaching. I, th I think it's Socratic method, I believe. Yeah. That's my method. And uh, don't get me wrong, it doesn't work with everybody. Like I've had right. a lot of students that get very angry with me when I do that. And then I've had a lot of students who are extremely appreciative of it. So it, it's very interesting, the whole dynamic of like, there are different teaching methodologies and there are different yes, learning yes. methodologies. And yeah. they, and unfortunately they, they, you know, like I will in a classroom of 20, my methodology will probably work with five 
and then there will be five that will just absolutely despise me. And then everybody in the middle is just like, yeah, whatever. You know, he's fine. He's a teacher, whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's probably standard. I know. That's standard and, for a good teacher. Well, but, and I think that's true no matter what methodology people take on. Mm -hmm. So, like, they could be the coddlers, and there will be five people who will love being coddled, and there'll be five people who hate being coddled, and the others will be like, yeah, whatever. You know, so like, yeah, yeah. The, the whole idea that like, in like learning is the same, like that, that it's all consistent and you're getting the same outcomes and stuff is, is never true because it's a, it's a relationship between the teacher and the students and how they each, uh, how one chooses to teach and how one chooses to learn. And they're always right. different. Right. I think, I think that's, it's important on so many levels. That's yeah. my soapbox for the I day. agree. I agree with that. Definitely. I've gotten in so many, so much trouble with so many deans over that stuff. But anyways, I have two last questions that I'm asking people. One, um, are there three artists out there that you would like to sort of give a shout out to, to try and encourage more people to look at? Oh, wow. This is like always the question. This is like the Monty Python, your favorite color question. I feel There's like- There's no wrong answer. I'm going to name two people that are coming to mind. They're kind of random. One is, and everybody already is looking at her, which is Amanda Gorman, who I think we're all taken, taken by her on so many levels. She's the exact age of my daughter. And I think there's something about that. Also, I think young- I think there's a lot of young people at, now that I've made the criticism that they can't take critique. I think that there are really some amazing people that are saying some really interesting things. And now I go way, way back and Todd Haynes, Todd Haynes as a filmmaker, but I watched the Karen superstar, the Karen Carpenter story where he, he tells the story with Barbie dolls. And I just still, I mean, I'd make my students watch it and they're like, ah, this is so old. And it, but he, he comes up as someone, for some reason, I feel like his ability to walk the line between empathy and privilege and see being able to see whether it's in his films, well, in his films, obviously. The, and those are kind of just like, I got to think of one more person. Oh, I can't. I feel like I'm failing. <laughs> you don't have because to. Someone... It's just a question. There's so many out there, right? Well, and then it's you can so... do more than three. That's fine. It was not a. I mean, it was just a number. I read. but they're I... not. They're. It's not coming to my mind. I have to. I'm failing you on this one. It don't um, stress over it. I will. I will come. You can come back to it if you want to. Okay. My final okay. question is a simple one, sort of. Uh, any advice for the next generation? Yeah, that I mean, maybe that folds into my other my other answer. And what we've talked about as this has evolved about crossing these lines between openness. It's it's hard not to make it trite in general, but open, you know, trusting yourself and being open to hearing from other people that I do think that this generation has something really special right now to offer. I think even pre-pandemic, I was a real believer that there's something and maybe it's because of my project and maybe it's because of my kids, but I felt something in this, my students in the last five years of this belief that there is a promise of a more pluralistic 
society that that can be changed and that art does matter but critical art matters too and that to push yourself a little harder and to like if you're going to use tiktok really make it your own you know and don't use filters this generation has a lot in common with the baby boomers the good part of the baby boomers don't be bad like the baby boomers don't fall into the like arrogance and thinking that you're so special that you don't have to continue to fight for integrity and what you care about. And I don't know, don't lose, don't lose faith that you're, you're inching us towards things being a little bit better, a little more fair. All right. And actually there's one thing I forgot. We put a pin in the uh, issue of you selling your artwork. Yeah. I think that's another thing where I come off on both sides. Once I, I think I've kind of copped out on it. Like I, I, I'm not good at playing the game. I'm very bad at business. I'm very uncomfortable with money, which is, I think it's made it so that I, I just assume, oh, who's going to want to buy pictures of kids. But I'm very uncomfortable with the gallery system. But like, like, let me tell you, if Yossi Malo called me up tomorrow and said, Betsy, I want to have a show, I would be over the moon. So I live on on both sides. I would like, uh, great, I'd like people to buy it. And I once did have one guy, a great guy, Joe Bio, buy a giant piece, and I'm proud of that. And it was nice to have the money, but I'm not good at that world, if that it's, makes it's sense. It's a tough world, and it's a different world. Like, it's a whole as I said earlier, like the institutional world versus the, the market world, like the, it's a, it's its own little subgenre within the art world of like selling your art. Like I love being in the studio and producing works. So like whether it's whatever medium I'm working in, like producing works, I love editing. I love finishing it, putting a frame on it, like doing all that kind of stuff. Right. I love everything about it. the moment I'm done with that. I really don't care. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Putting it on an exhibition. I love putting on an exhibition, but like, am I going to really put as much time and effort into putting on an exhibition or finding uh, an opportunity to put on an exhibition or finding somebody to sell my work to, or am I going to put that, devote that time to making more work? I am always going to choose make more work. Yeah. Yeah. That actually, I think I agree with that too. It's, it's very like, sad though. Like that that's the thing that's like holding us back. I, I need a personal assistant who focuses on my marketing, public relations type. And if I can get somebody to do that for me, I actually would probably be reasonably successful. Not very yeah. successful, but reasonably yeah. successful. Yeah, no, reasonably successful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, could, I, I think I'm with you on that one. I think, yeah, if I could have someone do that part for me that would, that would help. I'm much more, yeah. When in doubt, I, you know, as we said at the beginning, I've got a bunch of other projects that can use my attention. So. Well, that's the thing is like, we, we went into the creative industries because generally we're bad at business. Most yes. of us would agree yes. to that. Like, yes. I, yes. you know, there are the rare, you know, the Damien Hirst, yes. the Jeff Koons, the people that are phenomenal at business and mediocre at making art, but that's my personal right. opinion. But the, it's really, it, it's a difficult balance to ride. Like most artists are horrible at being business people. And so like, and yet we're being told that we should be better business people in order right. to make a living. And it's like, that's not why we chose it. Like I chose it because I didn't want to do that kind of crap. Right, right, exactly. And that, all, everything that goes with that. But it's all there. 
Like to yeah. be a, a successful artist is still being a business person. Like my best advice as a teacher to, to potential art students that want to go out of school is take a business class. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's yeah. Well, I mean, how much time do you spend doing taxes and like legal crap and right. uh, publicity and marketing and sending your work out for competitions or, or, or gallery representation or whatever, like all the, just like the paperwork and the legalities, we end up spending far more time doing all that stuff than we do actually producing artwork. And that's so it's sad true. to me. Well, another way to say it too, could also be, if you want to be your own boss, you have to know how to be your own boss. And you're going to have to know a lot of other things that as much as having that freedom is great. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. So I, yeah. And I hate that part, but. Necessary evil. Yeah. I thought of two more artists actually. Go right ahead. So she was actually a professor of mine at the school of the art Institute, Mimi Plum. And she's just had a book, two books that have come out white sky blew me away. So I would say Mimi Plum and Amani Willett, who is a Boston area, Boston-based photographer now who did a book called The Parallel Road, which is based on the Green Book, the African-American Motorist book. Those would be my two call-outs right now in addition to the other ones. So Great. Yeah. I mean, my idea is, is like we're building a network here through the podcast. So I want to try and sort of expand that network. Let's get some more people interested in some some people that aren't getting enough whatever attention. Yeah. Well, definitely those two. I think they're 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 like interesting people too. So fabulous. Well, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. This is really fun. I hope you're enjoying and learning from the podcast as much as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating, and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe too. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If there's a person or a collective out in the art world that you want to hear me talk with, please send me a message with a link to who they are through Instagram, at thewisefoolpod. Additionally, if you have any questions for future guests, like you want to know how to write an artist statement, or you want to know how they deal with creative blocks, or you want to know how they got their job, or you want to know how they make a living, send me the questions and I'll ask future guests your questions. Please be sure also to follow us on Instagram and tell your friends as well. Whatever you're doing now, have fun. <laughs>